Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news... Leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's peanut butter cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to Mom and Dad Are Fighting, Slate's parenting podcast for January 16th, 2014, the Be Present edition. I'm Dan Coyce, an editor at Slate. I'm the dad of Lyra, who is eight, and Harper, who is six. And I'm Allison Benedict, also an editor at Slate and the mother of Harry, five, Sam, three this week, and Wally, 11 months old. Happy birthday, Sam. Thank you. So today, <laughs> in today's episode, we're going to talk about mindful parenting with Carla Naumberg, who blogs on the subject at Psych Central. Is mindful parenting just another parenting trend that makes me feel bad that I can't fulfill its requirements, or can it actually help me not yell at my kids all the time? In our second segment, we'll talk about um, summer camp sign-up, which is upon us already, and argue about the various philosophies of summer parenting for kids both young and old. But first... Our parenting fails and triumphs of the week. Allison, you want to go first? Sure. I have a triumph. This is my first triumph. Hooray! Ever. Uh, <laughs> ever. Right. Um, it's a small one. But uh, my five-year-old... Small steps. Small steps. Right, right. My five-year-old Harry, who's in kindergarten, about a week ago, he just kind of started mentioning around the house that he was hosting a pirate party, and we kind of weren't paying attention or weren't really <laughs> listening, and he was, it, was, it became like this very elaborate thing, who he was inviting. It was going to be an indoor-outdoor party. They were, you know, he had all the activities planned and what everyone was going to wear, and then finally, I, my husband and I thought, oh, shit. <laughs> Like he really thinks he's having this party. <laughs> How are we going to tell him we're not having the party? And my inclination always when they like sort of wake up in the morning and say like, you know, let's go. Oh, I have a great idea. Let's go to Chuck E. Cheese today is to right. say like, uh, no, we're not going to Chuck E. Cheese. But we, I decided or we decided, I can't take all the credit for this, that we're doing this. We're doing the pirate party. I emailed the parents who were like, oh, yeah, we know about this pirate party because Harry told us about it at school pickup. <laughs> <laughs> You're never at school pickup, but we knew about it. And then Harry like 
you know, said, when are we going to the store to buy all the costumes? And I thought, hey, pirate party, it costs money. Instead, we went to the 99 cent store. This is not my thing. If like anyone had to say any, not, I mean, 99 cent stores are my thing, but like crafts and figuring this sort of thing out. No one would call me a resourceful mom, basically. Right. But we got like 99 cent extra long shoehorns as swords <laughs> and like, <laughs> it was really kind of you know it was it was a sad pirate party to me but it only cost $16 altogether and the kids had a great time and now he's already planning when, when the parents came to pick up he was like next week my Spider-Man party <laughs> <laughs> that is so, an amazing triumph thank congratulations you. thank you because uh, I definitely also would have been like no you're not having a pirate that's right. crazy talk right Wow, good job. I have a fail. I have a parenting fail this week. Okay. Um, Not my first fail. Uh, So (laughs) both of our kids in their first report cards of the year had lots of, uh, like they did fine, but they had lots of needs improvement in (laughs) the areas of behavior categories, like, you know, like need, like listens to authority figures or like desk isn't a fucking pigsty every day with mice breeding inside of it or whatever. But so we promised them both. That if they improved those specific grades to like a certain predetermined level, they would get to go to Great Wolf Lodge. Like okay. that was the big prize that we held over. And Great Wolf Lodge is this like crazy yes. indoor water park thing? Yes. Yeah, Listeners yeah. who don't know, Great Wolf Lodge is a chain of indoor water parks uh, scattered around the country where you take your kids for a joyous day of swimming and water slides and hepatitis. Um, so... <laughs> That is not a legally actionable statement. That's just an opinion. It's just my opinion that Great Wolf Lodge might give you hepatitis. We could still use a sponsor, Great Wolf Lodge. <laughs> um, so they got really excited about this. Like, they were ready, and they said they were going to do a lot better, and we made all these. Like, we actually talked to their teachers about it. So, like, Miss Cohen was like, all right, Lyra, well, here's what you need to do to get to Great Wolf Lodge. Um, so it was, like, a great plan, right? So that's good parenting, I feel like. Um, but so then, last week... We were like, oh, God, Martin Luther King Day break is coming up. What do we do? Because they have not only Monday off the holiday, which we also have here at Slate, but they also have Tuesday off for a teacher work day. And as with all school holidays, we were like, oh, God, what do we do? What do we do? What do we do? And then Alia's mom, my wife's mom, said, uh, oh, well, you know what? Um, We could take them to Great Wolf Lodge. And... We haven't gotten a report card yet, and frankly, I doubt that they have probably improved enough to earn the trip to Great Wolf Lodge. But guess what we said about them going to Great Wolf Lodge despite them not yet improving their grades? I can guess that you said. We said yes. Take them. Take them. Take them to Great Wolf Lodge. Can I make a suggestion? Sure. Terrible parent? Why don't you talk to their teacher, and maybe the teacher will say... They actually really have improved, so at least you can say to them, like, because you've been trying so hard and improved, Grandma's taking you to Grey Wolf Lodge. Oh, my God. That's a really good idea. Yeah. I mean, if uh, she says no, then you just have to leave it as is. But Right. Well, I mean, so we're maybe, I guess we think of it like a different thing that they want as much as Grey Wolf Lodge. But there <laughs> yeah, you anything. totally screw that one up. Can't the <laughs> yeah. Grandma take them someplace else? <laughs> she doesn't want, she, they, like, have taken them to Great Wolf Lodge before, and they're comfortable with it, and she's, like, excited about this idea. And so my way of thinking of it was I was a bad parent, but I was a great son-in-law. Right. By not being like, no, right. you can't do this special thing with my children. Well, you really weren't a great son-in-law. You were just doing what was easier for you, so you don't have to worry about getting coverage for them for work. Yes. yes. Thank you, Alex. Yes. <laughs> work you. triumph. Right. Work triumph. <laughs> Parenting fail. Okay, so... Uh, let's go to our first segment, Allison. This week, Hannah Rosen wrote a piece in Slate about the mindful parenting movement, which she says correctly diagnoses our parenting ills, that we're too stressed and worried about being perfect parents with high-achieving children to actually pay attention to our kids and parent well. 
but that in practice, mindful parenting, which tells us basically to be mindful, just sets us up with more rules to fail at. Rules like live in the moment with your child and be present. Mindfulness itself is all the rage these days, whether it's about parenting or about unplugging all of your uh, all of your devices. But Dan and I still aren't entirely clear on what it's all about. So we've asked Carla Naumberg, a mother of two who writes a blog about mindful parenting for psychcentral.com and who will be publishing a book on the subject later this year, to come on and explain it to us. Welcome, Carla. Thank you. So if you would, just define for us what mindful parenting is. Absolutely. Mindful parenting is just the application of mindfulness to parenting. So the more important definition is what is mindfulness. And the best definition I've ever read for what is mindfulness was actually offered by a fifth grader who was being interviewed by the New York Times. And he said, mindfulness is not hitting someone in the mouth. (laughs) And what he meant by that is, you know, so much of us move through our lives reacting out of habits or emotions or thoughts that we're not even aware of. And mindfulness is about taking the time and getting the space to become aware of what's going on so we can make a choice about how we're going to respond rather than just reacting like a crazy person, which is what I do, honestly, a lot of the time with my kids. So how is this different, or maybe it's not different, than just, you know, be a good person? (laughs) You know, that's a great question. I think they get confused a lot. Um, Being a good person is great, and some of us can just move through life fairly thoughtlessly and be a good person. Um, I thought I was one of those people, and then I became a parent, and it was really (laughs) hard for me. And all of a sudden, I wasn't such a good person all the time anymore. Meaning what? You were, like, screaming at your kids all the time? I was yelling at my kids. I was getting snappy at them. I was impatient. I was irritable. And I was thinking, what is going on here? These are the two people I love the most in the world, and I'm treating them pretty badly, actually. Like, I'm pretty grumpy and snappy with them a lot. And so I um, started researching and Everything I read kept coming back to mindfulness, and I kept thinking, no way, I'm not doing it. That's crazy. That's for, like, dirty hippies. It's not for me. I'm a type A, check things off my checklist kind of person. And then finally I thought, well, nothing else is working. I might as well give it a shot, which gets me back to how mindfulness is different from just being a good person. Mindfulness has nothing to do with whether you're good or not. Good kindness and compassion um, tend to be natural, organic outcomes of mindfulness, which is really about paying attention in the present moment without judging it and on purpose. So, you know, sometimes we end up paying attention by accident because something's really interesting or our kids are being super cute. And so it's really easy to pay attention to them, but we just sort of fall into it and we can just as easily fall out of it. And mindfulness is about deciding, making it like a conscious choice that you are going to pay attention to whatever's going on without judging it. And the without judging it is a crucial part that often gets lost in translation or in the mix. Um, because so often in my mind, I'll look at my daughter and I'm paying really close attention to her. And what I'm thinking is, oh my gosh, she's wearing stripes and polka dots together and her hair is in question. She's got peanut butter smeared all over her face. And the mental dialogue in my brain is totally judging her or judging myself as a parent. And so in that moment, I'm actually not present. In that moment, I've added this additional layer of my own little crazy brain talking, and I've disconnected from what's really going on. So that's the difference in mindfulness is that sort of total connection to the best we can do it. And most of us, including myself, are actually pretty bad at it, and that's why we practice it. So what do you think about the idea that you're saying yourself, like, you you know, you fail at it, <laughs> you try and yeah. you fail at it, and I, you know, I don't 
I really haven't thought of it in any way as mindfulness, but certainly there are periods in my, in my parenting life where I try harder not to yell or like be angry based on like whatever little box I've put my child in in the past three weeks um, right. to continue to see him in that box. But, um, you know, setting this up as like this this philosophy and way to approach parenting, like you said, it you you often fail and and then you. I assume there's a process there of judging yourself for that and an anger that that in itself perpetuates. I mean, how, how is this not sort of like just another thing for parents to, you know, have to, I mean, I guess it's not bad. The parents have to try to be good parents, but how is this not just another thing that we all just judge ourselves against? Right. It's, it's such a great point. And it's the one I think Hannah Rosen was making in her article. And I mean, I guess the first piece of it is, just because something's hard doesn't mean we should say, oh, I'm too tired. I don't want another thing on my list. Screw it. I'm not going to do it. Because, you know, if that were the case, why would it stop exercising, stop trying to eat healthy, you know, all these things, and just say it's too hard. I'm not going to do it. So in but my I have mind, done that. That's, that's exactly what I've done. <laughs> well, yeah, sort of me too, but I don't really like admitting it on national <laughs> podcasts. Um, but the second piece, and, and I think that Hannah Rosen was exactly right, that parents, we're overwhelmed by advice, and I've got this, like, now visceral reaction every time a parenting expert, whether it's in a book I'm reading or a blog or something, adds on this, like, additional should, my, my stomach, like, cramps up, and I almost want to throw the book out the window. I get really upset because I'm so overwhelmed and tired of it. Um, and the difference with mindfulness and the reason I think that the ideas behind mindful parenting are fundamentally different from other parenting theories or approaches is that a core component of it is self-compassion and forgiveness. And this stuff sounds really hokey, and it's really, it's almost hard for me to talk about it because sometimes I'm like, oh, this is so corny, I can't believe it. But the difference is when I find myself beating myself up for not being mindful enough, I think, you know what, I just got to let it go. That's okay. Like, I'm a human being. I'm going to screw up every day in my parenting and that's okay. And that's not really letting yourself off the hook. That's actually practicing an important aspect of mindfulness, which is noticing our judgmental thoughts and then just letting them go. Because the other choice is I can perseverate on them and continue to sort of beat myself up, which I'm, you know, I do all the time. And then I turn around and I tend to leak that all over my kids. So if I'm already on this like train of frustration and judgment and I'm not good enough, well, then the train just keeps on moving. And if my kids are on the tracks, they're going to get the brunt of it. So my other choice is to say, yeah, well, I totally screwed that up. I yelled at my kids again, and I'm going to take a deep breath and try again to do a better job. And any mindfulness book you read will say over and over again, it's never too late to start again, which is a very different perspective from some other parenting series that will say, if you do this, your kid will turn out well, and if you screw this up, your kid is going to grow up to be a drug-addicted psychopath, which, you know, is pretty damning for us parents who make a lot of mistakes all the time. It's this idea that if we don't get it right, our kids are going to be a mess. And that's not true. And mindful parenting doesn't make that claim, that if you just take enough deep breaths and get in touch with the moment enough, your kid will be like this healthy, well-adjusted, you know, smart kid who ends up going to Ivy League. Like, mindfulness doesn't say that at all and makes no promises. But it allows you, if your kid does end up screwed up, to at least accept it with open arms. I mean, I guess one question that I have about mindfulness is is there room in the mindful parenting philosophy for a parent who wants to not only behave on instinct not to only 
you know, uh, just do the first, have the first response that you think you might have to a scenario, but who still thinks there is a part in parenting for a little bit of yelling or a little bit of like making your kids understand that some things that they do should be judged and corrected in some way, or does mindful parenting sort of eliminate that side of parenting from the equation entirely? I don't think mindful parenting, and first of all, I want to make it clear, I don't consider myself a mindful parenting expert. I don't consider myself a, a parenting expert, so I'm just speaking from my own perspective, and I welcome other people who want to write in or whatever and share their um, ideas. But I don't think mindful parenting has this opinion that we all need to be these, like, you know, Dalai, Mama, Zen, Buddha, perfectly calm, and that you can never yell at your kid, um, and that, you know, the goal, that there's some goal out there, that we have to become this kind of super Zen parent to be a good parent. I think all mindful parenting says is that the best we can do in any given moment is try to stay grounded in the present moment and create a little space so we can respond in the way we choose. Um, but what does that mean? Don't, I mean, this, like, yeah. be, be present. That that phrase in itself, it's like, it sounds really good, but I still don't really know what it means. Like, Yeah, it kind of makes you want to, like, poke your ear out every time you hear it, right? Yeah. Like, I'm getting to that point, too. But what it means is, um, let me give you an example. So I, for whatever reason, a variety of reasons that we don't need to go in here, I get really anxious and tense around dinner time with my kids. I feel this huge responsibility to make sure they eat the right foods, to make sure they behave the right way, that they know how to sit on their tissues, in their chair, use their fork and knife, not spill their drinks, you know, and this comes from my childhood, this comes from wherever, it doesn't matter. And so I would, I would get like super tense with my kids and I'd start micromanaging them at dinner time. And I'd be like, put that down. You don't sing at the table. I don't want you to do this. I don't want you to do that. Um, and I wasn't, actually reacting or responding to my kids in the moment, I was responding to this anxiety in my head about what I thought they should be doing. So when I'm in the present moment, in that moment, the difference is, and I did this one night, I was like, okay, I'm just going to take a deep breath, keep my mouth shut and look at my kids. And I started to really observe them. And I noticed, yeah, like my little one was like rubbing hummus in her hair. The big one kept busting, you know, like Mary Poppins songs. And it was a little annoying, but overall I sat at the table for an entire meal and, yeah, they spilled a fair amount of food, but they got a bunch in their mouths, and they actually were behaving relatively well for little kids. But it wasn't until I said, okay, I'm going to get out of my head, my, like, crazy neurotic head, and actually look at my kids and just pay attention to what they're doing, that I was in the present moment. Yeah. And this is the thing about mindfulness that's hard, is you can talk and write about it and do all this stuff, and until you actually start doing it, you're, it's really hard to, like, get until you have that aha moment of going, oh, that was all in my head, and now I'm actually tuning in to the other person, or I'm paying attention to what's in my head from sort of a little bit of distance. I'm not so wrapped up in it. I mean, this makes sense to me more, like in like what you're saying. To me, the translation in my head, instead of be present, is like be less angry and pick your battles. <laughs> like that. Yeah. <laughs> that would work. That's what I, you know, that's that resonates with me. Um, so. I think the thing that's tricky about it, well, there are two things that are tricky. One is we get really wrapped up in this language, and I think the word mindfulness is kind of a trigger word for people right now, and some people will go on to anything that has the word mindfulness in it and decide it's just like panacea that's going to fix parenting for them, which it's not. And then some people have this very understandable sort of 
negative reaction to it. It's like, ugh, I guess this is getting forced on me. It's like how I feel about kale. I'm sick of hearing about kale. I don't want people to tell me, you know, eat kale anymore. Even though they're right, it's very healthy, but I'm done. Like, I don't want to hear about it. And so I get why it's hard for people. Um, but fundamentally, it's about making a choice to pay attention so that we can respond to what's going on in front of us as opposed to reacting out of a old habit or a gut instinct. Um, and I think that most people in this world, when they, when they have a moment to stop and think, they're not going to choose, huh, I'm angry right now, so I'm going to actively choose to hit my child. And some people do, for sure, and that makes me sad, and I wish they'd stop. But most people, when they can stop and breathe, they're going to say, I'm going to walk away. I'm not going to hit my kid, or whatever the example is. Well, thank you, Carla, for helping to assuage my knee-jerk reaction <laughs> to the word mindfulness. No, really, this is Making me more useful. mindful of my response to the word mindfulness. Yeah. <laughs> well done. I'm glad. Thanks, Carla. Thanks very much. Absolutely. All right. So segment two, notes on camp. Uh, TM Chris Wade. So last night, my attractive lawyer wife and I spent a romantic evening in bed uh, with two laptop computers and a big calendar working out this summer's camp schedule because registration starts this week here in January, and there's no nicer way to spend a January evening than thinking about summer camps. Um, so I sent out some emails to some other mom and dads in our neighborhood about their plans, and I found out that the kids of Arlington, Virginia, are doing all kinds of different things this summer, from going to a different camp every week, each one with a very specific targeted learning objective, to just spending a lazy summer at home, bonding with your parents and siblings, and entertaining yourselves for long periods. So here's my question, Allison, for you, and maybe the answer to this question is mindfulness. But how do parents survive a summer of kids at home without sending them to camp? Uh, you know, last year... Um, we have did have friends who just they decided our kids are going to go to the pool. They're going to have a nanny for some of the time. They're going to hang out with us for some of the time. We're going to work half days when we can. And we're just going to do the whole summer at home. Could you ever foresee yourself doing a summer with just your kids at home living the life? No. Uh, there's a whole philosophy that says, you know, our kids are so overscheduled as 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 they are during the year that in the summer we they don't need any they need nothing what they need is to be completely free to be bored because that fosters creativity uh, they need to like learn to be creative build things with sticks outside um, or with cigarettes if they're older like whatever right. it is that um, that this whole camp industry has has gotten out of control because of the parenting moment that we're in. I mean, for a variety of reasons. If you're asking me personally, like we have all of our childcare issues and certainly um, our older kids will go to camp. Uh, camp also is very important to me as a kid and as an older teenager. It's like a played a formative part of my um, experience of growing up. So I think it's a good thing when my kids are older, like you know, I was maybe nine when my parents started sending me to sleepaway camp for a month and then later for two months. And I very much want to do that, both because it was great and I think it will be great for my kids. Also, because I get now why my parents did that, which is that they got the summers without kids, which right. <laughs> I can't wait for that. Right. Um, but so so your camp experience when you were like from nine to 17 or however old you I were. I went away every stuff. summer for a you month went away or two every, months. And you, and you did legit love it. You totally loved it. I legit it was, loved it. But it wasn't, uh -huh. I will say, it wasn't, I mean, I've written about this and it was, it was, a, it was a religious camp and I've had many you know, sort of after thoughts about it, I wouldn't send my kid to that camp. But 
one thing about it that was great is that it actually wasn't this like it wasn't I wasn't going for enrichment really I mean I guess religious enrichment to my parents but it wasn't to make me a soccer star it wasn't it wasn't hard <laughs> the camp wasn't hard I wasn't right. really learning skills I mean it was really about like you know I just became more independent and you know uh, that's where I had my first kiss and that's where I smoked my first cigarette and that's where I first tried pot and that's like it just it was and, and for all of those reasons even the cigarette and the pot are why I want my kids to they go. should put that on the brochure <laughs> It's where I first tried pot. Uh, no, I agree to some extent. And, and it's interesting because my camp experience was much more fraught than that. Like I went to a camp only for a week or two weeks, a, a sleepaway camp every summer. And I had, you know, there were times when I really loved it, but I also was really homesick for a lot of years. Um, I had year, like whole summer like whole summer sessions where I was where I was like miserable and didn't like any of my bunk mates. I but your parents ones. made you go like you would come my home and say I don't want to go next year and they would right. sign you up. Yeah, it was the camp that my dad went to, yeah. it was the camp that my brother went to and that he was actually like a counselor and training at and a counselor at for several years that I was there and it was just like an important thing that they just made us do. And there were other years where I really did like it and I made lots of great friends. Um but it was not like a universally wonderful experience. But I definitely have found myself like I, like weirdly nostalgic for it in the in a way that I'm definitely sending – like Lyra is doing overnight camp this year for the first time. She will be nine this summer um, and she's doing it for a week. Uh, but like it, part of me wants to send her back to Camp Minicani in Hubertus, Wisconsin and like have her exactly replicate that experience that I had. Yeah. Uh, even though it was not like a universally great experience. But there are also other camps that she's doing this summer that are sort of more academically focused in a way, or at least focused on interests that she has that we want to foster and that we know she'll be enthusiastic about. So she's doing a two-week theater camp that is actually focused on comedy because Lyra is a funny kid who loves jokes and messing around and play acting and she loved it last year and we think she'll love it again right i just signed her up last night for a one for a two-week technology camp that is that has like tracks in computer programming and robotics and stuff although i've signed her up for filmmaking which is i think a nice mix of learning about technology and her sort of performative nature um, and also because I want her to learn to collaborate um, a little bit better instead of always feeling like the process of making a movie with her iPod is uh, that she is the boss and everyone else does exactly what she says. So how do but, you feel when you read it? There, there's a Washington Post article that we emailed around that cites, cites, cites some child psychologists that basically say that that's that what you're doing is is wrong, that there's a benefit to kids right. to have a summer full of unstructured play. And it right. sounds like and what you're doing is will be pretty we're structured focusing. and focused. Yeah, we're focusing yeah. it a lot more. And, we're, you know, which they're also doing other camps that are just, like, goof around and swim in the pool camps. Right. But, but it's not, their summer is not unstructured in any way. And partly that is just a function of two busy parents who just couldn't, there's no functional way we could do an unstructured summer. Right. But also, I will admit that, like, uh, uh, you know, we have friends that last year they did camps for a while, but then they also took the everyone in the family took the entire month of August off and they did like a road trip across the United States uh, to Yellowstone. And that to me sounds like a recipe for murder, murder, <laughs> four way murder, suicide, where everyone kills everyone else and we all end up dead at, in, in Yellowstone Park at the end of it. Like, I simply can't imagine that. And maybe it's that I am not mindful enough. And so my when my kids are bored, I can't stand it, and I will just do anything to stop them telling me that they're bored. Um, 
But it's hard for me to imagine a future in which my kids have that kind of lazy summer that I had when I was a kid. You know, it's just hard to imagine. Here's another question for you, Allison. When you weren't at camp when you were a teenager, did you work in the summers? Um, I worked at camp. I was a camp counselor. So that got around that. All camp all the time. Yeah, I was seriously into camp. Will your Uh, kids work when they are teenagers? If they're not at camp, I think so, yeah. I mean, I worked during the school year, so when I was a teenager. Um, We should also just back up for one second and say this is like a total... In the way that we're talking about this is a complete upper middle class problem. I mean, camp in itself is like something that all kids need. You know, there are plenty of parents who can't afford camp and need someone to watch their kids and you know our kids are getting we're, we're talking about choosing between enrichment or free play or whatever for our kids and right. a lot of parents don't have that choice so right. you know that's a much that's that's a more important conversation to be had about camp that's why ymca camps are so important um but yes yeah, so it should be i should also note that in arlington and in virginia in general camp is not exclusively an upper middle class phenomenon because of the why and because of Arlington County, in fact, which has a lot of extremely great, extremely affordable camps and a great deal of financial assistance, that camps can become, day camps at least, can become a thing that people of pretty much all income levels can send their kids to and do send their kids to. And so one reason why I do like a lot of the day camps around here is that it provides a certain diversity of experience for all of the kids of Arlington that they don't necessarily get in the schools, which are still pretty heavily segregated by class, if not always by race. And I think that that is valuable for everyone, and especially for my kids, who certainly, who I think certainly, I wish that was more a part of their lives in general. And that's a real failing that I have as a parent, is that that there isn't a lot of diversity in class in in our kids and our own life experiences. Another thing um, I really love about camp is the interaction your kids can have with teenage counselors. Um, mm-hmm. I don't think there's much chance in regular life for your kids to kind of hang out all day with, you know, with 15-year-old boys right. and 15-year-old girls. And I really, like, I saw from my kid last summer how how great that was for him. I mean, he loved that. And there, it's like it was like this weird relationship between, like, I mean, they had authority, but they are still kids. He was trying to figure it out all summer, asking uh-huh. if they were kids or adults. And I thought that that was, <laughs> it was it was really, really good for him. They introduced him to some cool music, like, uh-huh. and he's five, you know. But uh, I thought that that was also really valuable and, you know, better. I had a friend who also sent their kid to that camp, and they weren't so thrilled with it because they thought their kids their kid wasn't learning skills. But I thought those were like that. Those were skills. Like I uh-huh. didn't need him to learn, you know, macrame. Correct. All right. Well, we'll see. My kids. We'll see if my daughter at the end of the summer is like, Dad, could I just be lazy for a while? Maybe she will be like that. She uh, she is like that sometimes during the school year. So it could totally be possible. All right. So recommendations. Um, I'll do mine first Great. this week. Um, I am recommending two. Count them two um, comic books published last year um, that are, I think, really great for a specific kind of uh, moody um, teenager who is looking for something that accurately represents teenagehood as it exists for maybe not the most popular kid in school, but a kid who thinks a lot about what the world is like. so both these books paint, I think, really interesting pictures of being a teenager that feel a lot more weird and screwed up than and authentic than a lot of teenagerhood in fiction. So one is by Linda Berry, of course. Um, it's called The Freddy Stories, and it collects a, a bunch of um, Linda Berry's 
old alt weekly comic strips, Ernie Pook's comic. Um, but it just collects the ones about Marlis's weird brother, Freddie, um, who he makes and loses friends over the course of a year. And he gets tormented by dudes in his class who call him a fag and he fights with his mom and he visits the zoo. And it is really very lovely. It's a new collection of these stories that include some previously unreleased comics um, that came out last year from Drawn and Quarterly. Um, and then the other reminds me a lot of Linda Berry, even though it is a very hip and artsy Japanese manga that you read backwards, right to left, in classic manga style. It is called Sunny. It's by Taiyo Matsumoto. He wrote a manga called Tech on Concrete, which if you are a teenage boy, you almost certainly know about. And if you're not, you almost certainly don't, but uh, is a classic. But this one is like a very non-fantastical, non-science fiction-y story that is just, a, it's about a home for at-risk kids in Japan um, and the adventures that they get into and the problems that they have with each other. And it is also really beautiful and I recommend them both. Those are great. Or they sound great. Um, well, my recommendation, I feel like you always recommend things to read and I always recommend television. <laughs> things to watch. But yet again, no, 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 that's not true. I think I recommended a show. You recommended like live a, theater. Yeah, you're right. Oh my God, yeah. we're so cultured. Yeah. Um, but I am going to recommend a television show because let's face it, they watch them. Yeah. And my kids love the show Wild Kratts on PBS. I don't know. Your kids are probably too old for it, but it's uh, hosted by Chris and Martin Kratt, two awesome brothers who... Um, like bros or brothers? They're actually brothers, oh, okay. real brothers. Okay. Um, no, they're not bros. They're like, they're, I don't know, in their 50s probably or 40s. Um and uh, and it's it's a, it's they introduce the show every week and and talk about an animal and then it goes into and then it turns into an animated show and the basic plot of every show is usually some sort of uh, save a different animal from a variety of situations from bad humans or from predators or um, disease and. My kids, I swear, they've learned everything that they know from the show. <laughs> I don't know if it's all correct because they tell me all these little factoids about animals. And I'm like, uh-huh. oh, I don't know. Sounds good. Like, right. does a cheetah run 70 miles an hour? I have no idea. But they really are into animals because of it. They really like, I feel like, yeah, they're they're learning stuff. It's fun. Like, I I can actually sit with them and watch it and not, not go crazy. So That's key. That's yeah. key. Wow. Uh, shows like that always are interesting to me, though, because like when you're saving an animal from a predator like is there some other show that shows you like how sad the predator is then and how hungry he is like this morning my kids were watching the the cat in the hat knows a lot about that yeah and they were talking to a bear who was who had just gotten up from hibernation and the bear was his stomach was rumbling and he was so hungry and then there are these two little kids standing right in front of this hungry bear and they say well what do you eat bear and i wanted to be like the bear would eat you yeah the bear would eat you little children yeah but instead they made him a salad Huh. Um, I maybe haven't cl- paid close enough attention to answer that question. <laughs> I'll get back to you on that. All right. Uh, well, thank you very much, everyone, for listening. Please email us at momanddad@slate.com with your thoughts about today's show, with your parenting tips, with your suggestions for future topics, which we always welcome. Once again, that's momanddad, M-O-M-A-N-D-D-A-D, at slate.com. Please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. That helps other people discover the show. And please don't forget to leave a comment on iTunes while you are there. Um, Thank you very much to Chris Wade for producing this podcast uh, and for the Dotes on Camp joke. Um, And also to Andy Bowers, the executive producer of All Slate Podcasts. Thank you, Allison. Thanks, Dan. Thanks for listening. Hey. 
Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.